You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. This week, Mabel Chu finds out about post-traumatic stress disorder. Why is it easily missed and what should clinicians look out for? But before that, BMJ Features Editor Rebecca Coombs looks into the future of secondary care. Hello and welcome to this, the first of our new series of roundtable discussions on hospital care. Now, there is concern amongst our clinical audience about the future of secondary care in the new NHS. Uh, the playing field has changed, secondary and tertiary centres will have to respond to the new landscape of competition and tendering, but how? And obviously we've got efficiency savings... We held this debate at BMA House last week, bringing together those working in policy, NHS management and commissioning to discuss how secondary care needs to adapt. The full discussion is available as a separate podcast, but here are some highlights. A central point was to move away from the idea of secondary care being hospital-based. Here's how Derek Gretarek sees it. He's a GP and chair of the South Devon and Torbay Clinical Commissioning Group. Perhaps a threat to secondary care. My feeling about the future is that we're we're going to have to see uh, a move towards more community-based services and perhaps consultants moving out of the traditional hospital setting into other settings. And that may include moving diagnostic services and other things traditionally done in that setting. Uh, I think patients are demanding that and they're beginning to expect it. So I think, I think there's a lot of work to be done there in terms of sort of refocusing our, our thoughts about what we mean by spe- secondary care services and, and, and how those might be provided. Some of our secondary care colleagues are kind of embracing this uh, and others see it as, as being quite a challenging future for them. Mm. I think in terms of the, the actual body... Yimeng Ko, Chief Executive of Whittington Health in London, spoke on the quality improvements the she thinks this model provides. I think that we will be trying to provide more care in the community, but that, from all the evidence that we have had from the Whittington, it is not cheaper because it is decentralization, so you actually get these economies of scale. But it's better for patients, so it's a quality benefit rather than economic benefit so far. What we see is that we will do whatever we need to that improves the patient experience, keep people at home as far as possible, because we know longer term, if you keep people at home, they are less likely to be institutionalized and they are less likely to go into institutional care and social care impact and so on. But they will need to come to the hospital when they need to, when they have an acute problem. And that means the hospital will be much more like a Formula One pit stop. So you are looked after in the community, but when you come in, you will come in for short bursts of intensive care. You have multiple specialists jumping on you effectively, and hopefully you should be sorted within 48 eight hours to maximum 72 and out again and the rest of your care are looked uh, after in the community. Um, on, in terms of electronic but this pay- movement of care into the community will require funding. Jan Filikowski, Chief Executive of West Hertfordshire Hospitals NHS Trust, takes up my question. Vision is inadequate. How do we put incentives in the system so the money does get out into the community? Can, can I come in? I, I, I uh, think that... Uh, there will continue to be a major need for secondary care in acute hospitals. There will be fewer but bigger. But uh, for all my career, I've been told that this is going to happen and every year the number of patients going into acute hospitals Mm. increases. I don't think it's a matter of moving money out. 
if we're going to do that, then we're going to have to put more money into the pot. That's because the pattern as, across Europe is that the community services have grown. Nigel Edwards, Senior Fellow at the King's Fund. Uh, through extra investment rather yes. than shifting resources from hospitals, um, which is a problem because there's not a great deal of sign there will be any additional investment. And uh, it's increasingly likely that uh, within five or six years, all that local governments will be able to do is buy the minimum amount of social care for, the, for people with virtually no assets. There was a major crisis that we're not really talking about, which will make it even harder to discharge people from hospital in future. There is a bit of a problem here. We don't have the growth to make that shift. That means that hospitals have to shut, if you want to make that shift, in advance of the services being there. Um, and the experience of that is not a happy one. Yimenko also thinks that smaller hospitals will need to be part of a wider network of providers and closely integrated into this. I agree that we will have to work in closer integration with other providers. Uh, the Whittington Health is both an, a DGH as well as community services, so we got that part of the pathway integrated. But we also have to integrate with the rest of the system. For example, we already do with stroke, heart attack and vascular, where any patients with those problems are immediately redirected to the specialist centres. So I, I think that what we need to do is to make sure that as patients move between providers, that there isn't unnecessary delay, but and, and actually there's somebody in charge of their care. Recently, we had um, a case of, actually it's an inquest, where someone with uh, a cancer moved between three hospitals uh, where they are looked after by one, operated on the other and received their chemotherapy on, in another place. And each, at each part of the pathway, they added a delay of one to two weeks. So, you know, when you have three providers, it could be very complicated. Um, so I think that maybe... So what about doctors? How will the way they work need to adapt? Up this because I think the elephant in the room, certainly from where I am now, is actually the medical workforce. They work in a particular way because they have always worked in a particular way. And, and in order for us to go forward, when I look at the numbers, I think many DGH will survive if the most expensive resource and the most expert resource, the doctors, work differently. It means you don't have an ology for, you know, whatever, specialists. Um, we need more generalist specialists, mm -hmm. yeah, who takes on more care. We need them to work different hours, not just nine to five, actually shift work so that we can provide the same service seven days in a row. We want them to work more in teams, not singularly. They look after the whole team's patient, mm -hmm. not just their own, and so on and so on. And I can go on. And this is the major cultural change that we have to get them engaging. Fergus, how is your division coping with some of these issues? That's Fergus Gleeson, Divisional Director of Critical Care, Theatres, Diagnostics and Pharmacy at Oxford University Hospitals. They're fairly resistant to it, as you might imagine, because it's much more convenient to know that you're going to work from 9 till 5 or 8 till 6. But I think having realised that medicine, the environment's changed, they're now fronting up to or accepting that they're going to have to change their working patterns. And that will enable us to spread the workload and the patient activity over a greater period of time. And so that will automatically improve our healthcare as well as make it more convenient for the patient. So we are having the discussion that as we go around the job planning round once more this year, there's acceptance that it's going to change and provide six day working. I think. The idea of moving automatically to seven-day working would be too far, too far. But there is acceptance. It will at least be six days. And it's probably going to be, at a minimum, 
eight till six and possibly seven till seven. So we're, we're getting there. You're getting there. And finally, the intimidating issue of tendering. But what about this issue that secondary care isn't any good at tenders? Anybody got anything to say on that one? That is absolutely true. That's, uh, but that's because they're not used to it. We've had a, an attitude of build it and they will come sort of thing. And the, the consultants have, have had that attitude all along that they, they'll start providing a service, it'll grow, it'll grow, etc. And we do need to look at how you respond to a tender. And actually, once you start looking at these things, you can do them better. You can make better use of your resource and your facility and your staff. So secondary care is, is notoriously bad at it. And I was just writing a brief for some of my groups saying that we have to be ready and we actually have to be realistically ready rather than say, well, we've been providing it and therefore we should continue to provide it. We need evidence, quality, data that shows that we provide a quality service and how we are changing it. Some final words of encouragement from Fergus Gleeson there. The discussion was far more wide-ranging than we could represent here, so read the linked feature or listen to the podcast of the full discussion for more. Next up, BMJ Practice Editor Mabel Chu finds out about post-traumatic stress disorder. I have with me Dr Ruth Reid, who's a specialty registrar in child and adolescent psychiatry in Oxford. Ruth, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Hi, thank you. As well, I have Dr Mina Fazel, who's a research fellow from the Department of Psychiatry at Oxford University. Mina, welcome too to this BMJ podcast. Thank you. Ruth and Mina are here to talk to us about the article they've written in the BMJ's Easily Missed series on post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, let's start with a definition. What exactly is post-traumatic stress disorder? So post-traumatic stress disorder is a mental illness which can be quite severe, follows on from a very distressing and um, threatening experience that somebody has. Um, and it's where the natural process of recovering from that doesn't work well and somebody's troubled by a triad of symptoms. Might you define what you mean by a distressing event? Um, I'm assuming it's not just wars and natural disasters. Yeah, it can be quite a selection of events and there's increasing recognition of the range of events that can lead to post-traumatic stress symptoms. Um, they can range from from the sort of um, conflict and natural disaster and to things that really happen quite commonly in life such as um, violence in the home, um, the abuse of children and there's increasing recognition as well of medical events that can be quite frightening for the person experiencing them or even childbirth sometimes can lead to post-traumatic stress disorder if the mother felt she was at risk of death or that the baby might be at risk of death or serious harm. And, and how exactly is the disorder manifest? Well, people often don't present um, with very clear symptoms to start with. There's often a lot of embarrassment and shame around the um, original event. And so symptoms can present in quite a roundabout way. People might often present with bodily symptoms like headaches and, and stomach aches, um, or people can also sometimes present with what seems to be low mood, anxiety, sleep problems. Um, but in fact, there's an underlying 
hepatovirus symptoms, which are more classical as post-traumatic stress disorder. Is this a condition that only affects adults? No, it's also seen in children. Um, unfortunately, the criteria that are commonly used for diagnosis don't necessarily capture very well the symptoms that children present with and we think that's probably why the rates in children seem to be extremely low but we think actually children do experience post-traumatic stress symptoms. There are particular problems with um, asking parents about children's symptoms rather than asking children directly so a lot of things are missed that way. The prevalence rates that have been found at the moment are around the 0.1% and slightly higher than that, but we think that's almost certainly a significant underestimate. So in adults at least, do we know what the prevalence is? Yeah, it does vary between different contexts, and that depends on things like the um, background rate of violence and natural disasters in the population. But in sort of peacetime Western populations, it's around 1% to 3% at any one time. So let's move on to your argument that this is a condition that's easily missed. What data do you have to support that? There's been some work looking at um, general practitioners in London, and that's found that there's quite significant underestimates of about eightfold amongst their patients. There's also a lack of familiarity with what to do when somebody is diagnosed with PTSD and how to access treatment and what are the best treatments for them. There's also some evidence that came after the London bombings with a screening programme that was set up after that. Um, that programme received very few referrals directly from GPs, but in fact on sort of wider screening there was really quite a high need for treatment amongst the people affected by the bombings. There's very good treatments available for PTSD, but if if it's not found um, and it's thought to be another condition or not noticed at all, then people can't have access to those treatments and they might receive medication that's not appropriate, which obviously can cause harm, but also people can have very chronic symptoms that affect many aspects of their family lives and employment um, and they can also be at risk of things like suicide during that time that the symptoms are going untreated. So Mina, what are the diagnostic criteria for, for post-traumatic stress disorder? Well, according to the ICD-10, The diagnostic criteria first that the person must have been exposed to a stressful event or situation. And following this, they then are more likely to experience a persistent reliving of the stressor, either in the daytime with flashbacks or at nighttime through nightmares. In addition to that, people who've suffered these um, stressors might then have an avoidance of any potential reminders of the event and then often have either an inability to recall certain aspects of the exposure to the stressor or um, have symptoms of what we call hyperarousal, so um, difficulty falling asleep or constantly in a state of hypervigilance waiting for something terrible to happen. Okay, well, that's very useful to know, but I guess it needs to be decoded in terms that clinicians might use every day with patients. Uh, Are there specific questions that you'd like to frame for uh, listeners and readers uh, or are there specific clinical tools that we might use here? We believe that the most important thing in um, assisting a diagnosis of 
post-traumatic stress disorder is to be able to have a trusting relationship with the patient because as my colleague mentioned earlier people often are very frightened to admit to the symptoms scared to recall the event and part of the diagnostic criteria is that there's a constant avoidance of any reminders of the event and alongside that is that many people will be scared and will not want to talk about the event as part of the general avoidance symptoms. We recommend that it's important that clinicians ask about potentially traumatic events such as assaults, accidents, any complications that might have occurred during a medical procedure or for example during childbirth in women. Um, and there's also a freely available tool that's a 10-item questionnaire called the Trauma, Trauma Screening Questionnaire, which might also be a tool that any clinicians might consider using. Might you give us a couple of examples of questions from it? Firstly, the most important question a, G- a GP might ask is to explore whether a potentially traumatic event might have taken place. So if they've been exposed to any violence, witnessed any very traumatic events that made them frightened for their own lives or for the lives of somebody close to them or undergone any medical intervention during which they might have felt that degree of threat and fear as well. Once such an event has been identified, then questions regarding that event are very important to ask. For example, do they remain preoccupied about that event? Do they experience any symptoms that bring that event back to life. For example, are they getting flashbacks during the day? Are they having dreams about the event uh, at night time? And therefore, just questions around that event and the impact that might be having on them um, in the present time are very important to try and elicit. So all of these items are in the screening questions. And also, it does ask about irritability or outbursts of anger, and difficulty concentrating. So it covers a different range of symptoms that people suffering from PTSD do experience. Now, you've also mentioned that the context matters, and some people may have come from uh, a different country, a different culture, where they have experienced a higher level of violence. Does culture and language play a big role here in how the condition is, is manifest? It's very important to be very um, sensitive and aware of the fact, for example, people who've been forced to migrate to Britain, refugees, for example, are likely to have had um, many more potential exposures to traumatic events. From the evidence we have available, um, they're more likely to at least tenfold, maybe thirtyfold increase in the prevalence of post-traumatic stress disorder. And yet the difficulty with language and the unfamiliarity with services for many of these people might make it difficult to first identify these people suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder and then um, find the best way to help them. Okay, that's very helpful to know. I have a patient in front of me as a GP who I suspect has PTSD. What would be the next step in management? Well, you'd need to explore with the patient what their willingness was to access further treatment. Um, People can often be very frightened about the possibility of dealing with the trauma because of the avoidance symptoms. So it's very important to try and engage them in the idea that there are effective treatments 
out there which can help them. And it may take actually several sessions to um, get to the point where somebody's willing to accept an onwards referral for psychological help. If the patient is willing, then psychological help's definitely the first preference if possible, but not everybody is willing for that. And some patients do um, prefer a medication-based approach. The next step really would be to try and refer them onward to a psychological service where someone has specialist experience in, in treating somebody with a trauma-focused approach. Now, you mentioned earlier the fact that uh, there are often comorbidities such as anxiety and depression, which add a layer of complexity, I'd imagine, to management. Yes, about four out of five patients have a comorbid psychiatric disorder, so um, it does make it quite difficult. Really, it's important to think about which came first um, and which is most severe at the moment, and also how much each one is contributing to risk at the moment as well. Um, those kind of factors will determine how you manage the comorbidity. Yes, for instance, so if somebody had severe depression, uh, th- that might be treated first, to, uh, particularly if they're at significant risk to themselves. Okay, well, that's a very helpful uh, summary of the diagnosis and management of post-traumatic stress disorder. Thank you both for your time. Thank you. Ruth and Mina have also written an educational article on the disorder for the BMJ, so take a look at that for more information. That's all for this edition. Next week, we'll be looking into an intervention which reduces BMI in young children, so join us then. Thanks for listening. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.